to From Believing to Being, a podcast about pursuing meaningful spirituality after faith deconstruction. We're your hosts. I'm Karen. And I'm Dave. We're two former evangelicals having an ongoing conversation about what life and spirituality look like after letting go of our religious beliefs. Join us as we discuss deconstruction, Christianity, mysticism, enlightenment, and consciousness, And most importantly, how to experience this new way of being in the midst of parenting, careers, and going about our everyday lives. If you've recently left your faith or simply feeling pulled into a deeper way of being, we hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you and really just reassure you that you're not alone on this journey. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It's Karen here. And I think today is going to be a little bit like, I don't know, maybe like a potpourri podcast. Mm -hmm. Dave and I have already been talking for a few minutes uh, about some different things. So who knows where where we're going to go from here. We had kind of tossed around the topic for today of being this idea of, of awakening and enlightenment and deconstruction. Are they all the same thing? Are they different? Does being enlightened mean that you're special? Does having gone through an awakening, you know, mean that you've transcended something or make you sort of more spiritually superior to somebody else? Just kind of tossing around those ideas because in this in the circle of spirituality and even in deconstruction now, there's, you know, talk about awakening and enlightenment and what that means and what that looks like. And so I know I've had some feelings around it, almost like an aversion to the word awakening and enlightenment, because it does seem to carry like a sense of superiority to it. But now that I understand it better, I realize that that's not exactly what it's about. So I think we're going to kind of start off with some of that, and then we'll just see where things go. Does that sound good to you? Yep, absolutely. And I'll just say, so yeah, I mean, we we were having a great conversation and we're, literally we were just like, oh, we should probably actually like start <laughs> something for the podcast. So it will probably really just pick up where we left off, honestly. Like, so we were talking about the butterfly analogy and speaking of superiority and awakening and enlightenment. So the analogy typically goes, right? You're this caterpillar and you end up in a cocoon, typically some sort of like life circumstance that that is difficult. I mean, I, I shared my big spiritual journey a few weeks ago, and it was all these different breaking points, different cocoons. And then on the other side, you become this butterfly. And it's just ripe with that superiority complex, because people would typically objectively say uh, there there's more beauty and grace and all this with with a butterfly as compared to a caterpillar. So yeah, it's interesting as we think about it from this lens, how I think you and I would both agree, right? That there isn't any superiority. And yet the metaphors so often used have superiority all over them, right? So it's almost like we have to backtrack on that stuff in a way to clarify what it is that we speak about when we talk about awakening or enlightenment or whatever, you know, spiritual evolution, it all has connotations of, yeah, 
superiority. That's good. And I, I have, I have struggled with that too. I, I feel in a much better place as we sit here today, but a year ago, two years ago, I definitely felt that I felt like I knew better than others <laughs> or I was not never like holier than thou Cause that never really struck me. But like, again, I was more awakened or more enlightened or whatever. And that, yeah, that's just totally missing the point of what we're actually talking about. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about how the people who originally coined the terms enlightened and awakened, now I can see how they were trying to find a word that described the feeling that this new way of seeing gave them, right? Because I know when I, when I went through deconstruction, I did have this sense, like when I, when I let go of my beliefs about God, I did have this sense of my eyes being opened of like, suddenly I can see all the ways that I had been, that my thinking had been clouded by the, all the religious beliefs. And so that sense, it felt like, like I was waking up from something like, I I mean, really that would have been, those would have been some of the words that I probably would have used to describe it as an awakening, just because the feeling that I had was like, I was shaking off a dream, you know, when I let go of all that, all of those religious judgments and everything. And the same thing with enlightenment, you know, now, I guess the way that I've understood it is that awakening and enlightenment are are related, but also two different things. And to me, I would see enlightenment as being the ongoing little insights that you get as you, like after you've woken up, after you've had this awakening, this different way of seeing, you continue to get like more and more insights, you know, about what is happening to you or about how to see the world or things like that. That feels like enlightenment. You know, you're seeing new things. Even the word insight kind of speaks to this sense of enlightenment. Like something new is coming to the light that was our, that was always there, but now you actually have the eyes to see it. With to me, I think about those guys who first who first coined these terms, just trying to explain to people, you know, this new experience that they had had. And now looking at us, you know, hundreds, thousands of years later being like, oh my gosh, you know, shaking their heads like, that's not, that's not, we didn't intend for it to become like this superior thing, you know, it's like holier than thou, like you said, kind of experience. That's not what we meant. We're just trying to describe what we felt. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's what comes to mind is it's, it's a, it becomes an identification game. Yes. An ego game yes. where, you know, I am enlightened. I've always had that perspective that if somebody says they are enlightened, they're probably not. If someone right. says they are awakened, they're probably not. But even that is is missing the whole point. Mm-hmm. And I, as we were thinking about this, I, I did some Googling around for different perspectives. And the word recognition came up a lot like recognizing and realization and 
they, they kind of mean the same thing, mm-hmm. but recognizing something different, I guess, because it, mm-hmm. it could mean a lot of different things. We could get very specific in terms of what some of the uh, mystics or yogis or whatever will say is, you know, realizing a non-dual reality, you know, that, that we, there is just one essence that is unfolding. That could be a definition. But... I'm going to go back to our guy from last week in, in my favorite definition that I found, Alan Watts. And he said, awakening is not to know what this reality is. Awakening is to know what reality is not. It is to cease identifying oneself with any object of knowledge whatsoever. Mm-hmm. That just really spoke to me because again, it negates that identification. To me, yes. that's... That is it. Like to no longer identify as as this or that or this or that or whatever, which we all want to do, but just to let it go and have that perspective of the experience, just let it be. Just have it be this experience that unfolds rather than continuing to look at oneself and assess where am I in this thing right? Mm -hmm. It's to to take the self out of it and just be the experience unfolding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I looked at a couple of things too. And in Sam Harris's book, Waking Up, he doesn't, I couldn't find in my quick thumbing through the book, I couldn't find a definition for awakening from, from his book. But basically he was saying something similar is that waking up is sort of, or would be a recognition that the small I, the self, is an illusion, right? I had this. Mm-hmm. So this morning I was, uh, I had this image in my head of, so I was thinking about the butterfly analogy. And then um, I was thinking about the idea, you know, that people will say this this idea of awakening or waking up is it's not personal. It's not like you, your like your ego necessarily recognizes anything. It almost at times can feel like something is happening to you that you can't necessarily explain, you know? And I was, I was thinking about that and I had this image of somebody getting buried in the sand at the beach. And so, you know, like you kind of dig out like a little shallow hole the person lays down in it and then you heap all the sand on top of the person to where only their faces is, is there, right? And then at, at eventually like the person starts kind of moving around and just like moving their fingers, moving their toes. And on the surface, it doesn't look like anything is happening, right? But the But something underneath is waking up, like it's starting to shift. And then eventually after a while, you start to see grains of sand falling off of the top. And then maybe a hand pokes through and it's like, ah, I've got a hand, right? Like the hand is here. And maybe the hand is like the hand in the sense would sort of be maybe you like our deconstruction, you know, letting go of our religious identities. Like the the sand would be all of those religious judgments and we've broke through from that sand. And now we see our hands like, okay, well, that hand can also help clear away some of the other sand. And so you're, you know, your body keeps like shifting and shifting and shifting and finally as more of the sand falls away, it's easier for the remaining sand, right? It's easier for you to move. And so I had this idea that that sort of is like 
what an awakening is to me, this entity that was always there, but you've heaped all these judgments and beliefs upon it. Like we've talked about it so many times, all these other identities and without you doing anything on the outside inwardly, something is percolating there and beginning to shift everything around. And then it breaks through into your experience as, you know, as something like deconstruction or just, you know, a new awareness of social justice or, you know, something else comes through and then everything else can sort of start of shift and fall apart. But the whole point of it all is to reveal something that was already there. That it's not like the little eye isn't waking up and gaining something. It's more like the larger eye is just clearing away the little eye to make itself known. Right. To make itself known and to make itself true, right? That true beingness that is waking up and, and moving and shifting and arising through the sand becomes the means in which we we go about yeah. this world, right? I think something that you've mentioned a few times is locus of control, yes. right? So, you know, the control in a awakened mindset and, and to be clear, I think what one thing I, I understand about any of this stuff is it's very, it's not like a one-time thing that some people mm. tend to think like, oh, suddenly you are this uh, changed being. It, it's a shifting and a, a, a gradual real, like realization, I think, mm. right? Um, and so it's almost like that gradual shift of, control between the the false self the little i the ego whatever word we want to use to describe what we typically think of as ourselves mm -hmm. to to letting the the greater beingness that truly transcends us as individuals i think to me that's where this stuff becomes really meaningful is that the the way in which i see myself going in the world whether I'm at work or with my kids or whatever, is not the same me that I so often would identify myself as, right? That it's mm -hmm. like there's this greater sense of who is dictating how I go about the world. And then mm -hmm. me, this, this small I is here still, right? There is always seemingly going to be this sense of myself as a finite being but that continual allowing of that more awakened part of me to flow that transcends the little me, I think is, is how I see this kind of unfolding. Mm -hmm. I was thinking with the, with my little sand picture that anybody who has ever been buried in sand knows that you never get the sand off completely. <laughs> Until like mm. you go home and take a shower and wash your clothes. And so I was thinking that, you know, all those, like we're always going to have lingering grains of sand, but now we know that we're not the sand. You know, we were something that was buried under the sand, but we're no longer the sand. Um, so I like that you mentioned that locus of control because I'll share that story again. That um, Yesterday, I... Um, my husband had taken 
the kids out to go skiing. And so I was at the house alone and I was, you know, going like doing some cleaning and taking care of some stuff. And I had the thought, I had a thought that I wanted to go get um, a drink or something from the gas station because we didn't have what I wanted in the house. And so I was aware that I'd had that thought. And then, you know, I'm, I'm going, I'm going around the house and the next thing I know, I'm in my car and I'm driving to the gas station. And it was so weird. I was just like, I I actually said out loud to myself, what am I doing? I had this sense that, that something in me had not necessarily given permission to like go anywhere, but that my mind had had this thought and my body was acting in cooperation with this thought. And it was almost like they were living their best life without me, even, <laughs> like without me knowing it was like, I, I felt, I felt in a way a little bit like hijacked by, by my mind and my body. And it was so disorienting because I literally was there in my car driving and I'm like, what, what am I doing? H- how did I, at what point did I pick up my keys and get in the car? And go here. Like I didn't agree to this. It was, it was so bizarre. And then eventually I was like, well, I'm in the car, I'm driving. Like I might as well just go get the drink that I want and you know, whatever. And I like entered back into this little, you know, drama that was playing out, but it really did make me more aware of how, how often my mind and my body, especially before when I wasn't like aware to this stuff, but how often our minds have a thought and our body cooperates and we just go along with it. And that this stuff really is a shifting of control, like a being able to step back and be like, well, whoa, whoa, mind, body, I know that that's what you think you want to do or you think is important right now, but actually we're going to stop, take a break, have a moment. And, and it's not even a judgment of whether you continue to go along with what your mind body does. It just is the fact that like you're aware that there is a control element like in play, I, I guess. Do you know what I, do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And this is where I don't know that we've touched on it in our conversations yet. So better, better now than never in some of the non-dual communities that I frequent, there is a ongoing debate about free will, which is hilarious because so much of the Christian answer for all of this is because we have free will. You know, I've heard that time and time again that, well, God allows pain and suffering because humanity has free will. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting how when you step back and start to apply these these other ways of awareness, that question resurfaces like, do we really have right. free will? And I know Sam Harris has talked about it. And I'm thinking of a Spira video that I watched recently where he was talking about that a little bit more. Not, I don't think that he's ever publicly addressed it, although maybe he has. But either way, it's what it boils down to, as far as I understand it, is that where do thoughts come from? And how much of what we do is a thought versus actual decisions, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Is yes. is deciding something a thought? And if so, where does that thought come from? And where does the control 
come from the free will. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this, it's almost like this idea of giving up control to higher self, lower self, big eye, little eye, whatever. Maybe that's all just part of the illusion of our existence. And maybe that doesn't even exist and that there isn't actually free will. And, and I know that that gets into ethical dilemmas of consequences and all that. So I don't want to even like go there because of course mm-hmm. there's nothing we could change about that. Not that I would want to. I mean, if people do heinous things, they there should be consequences. But the level and the, the way in which those decisions were come to, I think is a lot more challenging than we typically think. Yes. Yes, absolutely. When I had this experience of like, it's just getting in the car and driving, it felt a little bit like, you know, people just come out of a factory, right? We all like are born, we all more or less look the same. Maybe we're different colors. You know, maybe we get different downloads in our, in our brain that create our personality, but we all have sort of this factory programming, <laughs> you know, and those are, those would be, you know, we need to eat, we need to drink, like our very base kind of things. It's like how our body is programmed to run, right? Like what we do. And that's why, you know, maybe before you have the thought about walking, like your body moves your feet, right? You don't have to, you don't have to think about that. It's like your body's already doing it. So we sort of have like a factory program that, you know, is our evolutionary, evolutionary programming. And then there's also the nurturing stuff, right? That nature nurture, the nurturing stuff that we're, that is, is programmed into us by way of our experiences. And so when we get to this point in our life, it really is hard to say what, like, are we really free or are we, have we just been so conditioned by our factory programming and all of these other previous experiences? Like, do we really have a choice? And I know there have been times in my life when I've been faced with a choice and it didn't feel like a choice because of everything else that was, that seemed to be weighing in on it. It didn't, it didn't even feel like I had the ability to make a different, a different choice. So yeah, the free will, the free will question is interesting from that regard, but also like you're saying is, I mean, control is an illusion in any sense. (laughs) So, you know, are we just kind of at the whims of life unfolding and meanwhile believing that we have some some say in how and how things can go? We have some semblance of of that, I think, but definitely not in the big picture. Yeah, and I think that if I'm to best define what enlightenment is, like what what it means to be operating from a frame of reference that is enlightened and again not that the not that the individual is enlightened because that's right. that's always a that's always a misdirection but there is like a state of mind of of enlightened of lightened way of seeing anyway um you know the screen analogy comes to mind and you know the screen is is the base through which everything is appearing and so to be in a frame of reference that is enlightened is to realize that what is happening on the screen is is happening and there is no element of the screen that is dictating what is happening 
-hmm. right? It's just happening. And the, we are just here to see it unfold. And it's really a, it's a destabilizing thing. And it's not, it's not what the ego wants to hear, Mm -mm. right? The ego, ego wants free will. Ego wants there to be control because without that, who is the ego, right? Who is the little I if there is no control, right? Yeah, I had had a similar thought. So the screen, the screen thing I like, but, and um, Rupert Spira is, uh, is a good one for this. And also was, was Ramana Maharshi the one that also. I think he's the one who kind of started that analogy. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, they, they talked about it and it's a good one. You know, the idea of the movie screen and how you project movies onto the movie screen and the movie screen allows the movies to play, but is not actually part of the play, the playing of the movies. Mm -hmm. Um, I had what I think is a little bit more of like a higher level analogy to offer. And this is about how we're all like decorated sugar cookies. <laughs> Very keeping it real here. Um, you know, I was thinking back to when my kids and I made sugar cookies for Christmas. So, right, like you have this dough that is just a big, you know, like a big lump of dough. But then you take these cookie cutters and, you know, you cut out gingerbread men or stars or circles or stockings, reindeer, whatever, Santa hats, like you can cut out any different shape that you want. And then you decorate them, you put sprinkles on them, you you know, some people get super elaborate, you can make your frosting all nice and shiny, you can have little silver glittery things. And it's like, I feel like we're all these decorated sugar cookies, you know, some are really beautiful, and have all sorts of different things on them, and others are just plain. And we're all talking about, like, we're all judging each other, like, oh, I'm a star. I have, like, you know, look at this, all, how nicely I'm decorated. And the, you know, the waking up part is realizing that you're just dough. Like, you're, you're just dough that happened to be cut out in the form of a star. And the decoration, you know, would be like our identities and maybe our privilege and all that kind of stuff. But at the heart of it, you're just dough. And that there's like what you're saying about the ego not wanting this is there's this real ego death. And the one that, you know, the one that I have like really had a hard time with is that you realize you're not special and the ego wants to be unique and have a purpose and believe that like there's a reason that it's here in the world, right? But this stuff is basically like, no, you're just dough. There's really nothing all that special about you. And our egos fight against that so hard. And it really is, it's not an ego death because you never actually like kill the ego and you don't want to, but it is this, this thing that you have to grieve. You have to let go of the belief or the desire to be something super special. And exactly like you're saying, like the ego does not want that. The ego wants to maintain control, wants to believe that, you know, if it just puts another identity on or if it just acts a certain way or achieves something, then, you know, that it will be able to, uh, to continue existing and maintaining control over life. But really, it's just, we're all just dough. 
with different decorations, with different decorations on it. And the, I think the end result, or maybe not the end result, but like after you go through that place of grieving that you don't have as much control as you want or that you aren't special, you know, then you can engage the world con- almost more from like a pure place where you can look past everybody else's decorations and see that they're all just dough too. And that we're all just like playing, you know, playing this weird game. Um, but like overcoming the need for for control and for that desire to be special, that that desire for control and like desire for significance, I think mm-hmm. that's yeah, that is not fun. Yeah, yeah, that's I think that's a part of the awakening that's dark nights are are yeah. like that. But I just want to say, I, when you when you first mentioned the dough, the <laughs> the sugar cookie analogy, That's I was so like, uh, no, 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 don't wait for this, wait for this, because when you first mentioned, I'm like, I just no, I like the, I really that was that was what was going on in my head. I was like, I just like the screen analogy better, and and truly that like part of me does, but here's the difference, I think that the the sugar cookie analogy is much more approachable and it's less like i can't think of the right word esoteric comes to mind maybe it's esoteric but like think about like a spira and a ramana maharshi talking about how (laughs) we our ultimate nature is awareness right and that screen is awareness it's like it's helpful for people like us to have that conversation yeah but it's not so helpful for people who just don't have an interest in that. You just like go right over their heads. And so I do like the dough. And here's, here's the other thing I really like about it. So go, go back a few steps, right? Mm-hmm. Is all right. So there's all these ingredients that go into the dough, whatever dough doesn't know what those ingredients are. So as we talked about last week, we don't know what the ingredients right. that make up us. We don't yes. know how that happened. Yeah. We don't know how this experience came to be. And here's the part that I like the most about it is when you're making cookies, you don't, you don't individually make each one, right? You don't start the ingredients and then put them together and you put one big thing of dough, right? And then each is extracted from that. Yes. And that I think is a beautiful analogy because that is it. I mean, we are, if you go back to you know, you talked about the the baby factory and like this idea of who we are and like we were grown by our parents. Like we were literally like they we were part of them that then we we came out and we became separate, but really we're not, right? Mm-hmm. We we were them. And then if you trace that all the way back to whenever humanity started, there was a singularity of the human species and so we're all that Mm -hmm. (laughs) right and so i like i like to think this way because it doesn't have to be esoteric it doesn't have to be this like you know weird spiritual teaching it can be as simple as just yeah using these analogies (laughs) to to yeah i I like that i I think that's good and and it's good too because we are we are all the same yeah yeah something that you that you said reminded me of um something that i read in the new man by Thomas Merton, like radically, radically changed my understanding of all this stuff. But in his writings, he created this, you know, so you have God and then God 
kind of like our prim, our prism analogy from a while ago. So you have God and God gets dispersed into all of these different forms. And then all these different forms then begin to see themselves as separate, which would be like what Adam sort of represented. But then the way back to God is you have to abandon your idea of the separate self, go back into like, let allow yourself to sort of be absorbed back into that collective of God dispersed in the individual images. And then that is how you get back to God. So it's sort of this like individual God over here and then expanding out to everybody and being like uh, withdrawing back into an individual. So the way back to God is to withdraw from the individual self back into the collective and then the collective will be drawn back through to God. Kind of like what you're saying that we, while abandoning the self feels like death, if we want to find God, you have to abandon the self, the little self, which is fascinating and awful, hard. Yeah, I'm intrigued by this because I think that ego death is actually probably what it is, right? I think we, we were talking about that a little bit. Like, oh, I don't really like the word awakening or awakened <laughs> right. or enlightened. And I was just like, well, what is it? Well, it's death. So let's yeah. call it death. Of course, like nobody wants to hear. That's not an attractive way to talk about it. But I think it is. I mean, I think we have an aversion to say, well, this it's not actually an ego death, but it kind of is. If we want to trace it all the way to its point of whatever conclusion, if we follow these kind of philosophies, right? Again, it's theoretical. Like, do we know any of this for sure? No, but we can can experience it, right? That's Mm -hmm. what I love about these teachers in this space. They're never like, here is the absolute truth and you just have to believe Right. It's like, no, here is what I have experienced. Here is what my teachers had experienced and try it for yourself. See what happens. And it's always, I mean, I think that's a beautiful way of painting the picture to go back to the prism is it is tracing back to the source of where that light is coming from. And, and in so doing, it's almost like you can't be both. And maybe that's a maybe that's a paradox that I have yet to be able to reconcile. Yeah. But it's like to to go back to the source and become that one non-dual entity essence. Mm-hmm. Can you be the individual light that is again an individuated being and that oneness? Mm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. To, but I well I what I do feel strongly is that you do have to go through a death yes now the question is is the death final that i think is is more up for debate but there is this death we're coming to realize that who you think you are who you've always thought you were has to die yes uh so one way shape or form right yeah and it does seem i mean what i've what i've been experiencing is that the first one the first two were the hardest setting aside my identity as a Christian. And then my, you know, self-imposed identity as a writer, 
were the hardest ones, the most agonizing, you know, the most like fraught with anxiety and fear and everything. And then after that, you start to, well, I started to recognize the resistance a little bit more quickly. Like, okay, this I think is something I'm going to have to let go of. And it's not easier, but you get, you just start to recognize it more quickly. And I think we've talked about this before so that it becomes a little bit easier each time. I mean, it's, it's the identities that you cling to the most that, that define you the most that are the hardest to let go of. And so, I mean, for people who, you know, who feel really strongly about more identities, um, then it's going to be those deaths, I think, are going to continue to feel hard for a while. And then once you get into it, I mean, there's lots of areas I think I still have dying to do, but at least recently over the last like six months or so, it's felt a little bit easier. Have you noticed that too? Well, yeah, I guess I'm different. I I can't say that I've ever really felt a strong resistance against it, but a lot of the the identity ego deaths that I've experienced were more the way of the cross, as Eckhart Tolle calls it, where like you go through enough hardship that you just have to let go. And so it, it it's never been difficult because it's always been liberating to, mm-hmm. to get to a point where I just have to let go. But I do I do have this question. And we're gonna get weird. If that's okay. Because yeah. we haven't been weird yet. <laughs> right? We're so, all sugar cookies isn't weird. No, I'm, yeah, I'm obviously <laughs> kidding. But but we're going to get even more weird. So what about identifying as anything? What about identifying as a person? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Because I, that's where I'm drawn is is really even letting that go. Because to me, I think identifying as a person is still just a, another story that we tell ourselves to coexist in this thing we call the world, the earth. But is it something that is is fundamental to our experience or is it just a story? I mean, I'm I'm right there with you. I mean, even just this morning in a talk with some friends, you know, my friend was going on about something and in my head, I'm just like, that's because you still believe you're a person. <laughs> that was, that was what I was thinking. Yeah. And more and more, it's starting to feel like my experience is starting to go there more. I feel like that's something that I am just starting to realize that what I am is is more of, you know, that that like collection of ideas, collection of memories, collection of habits. I mean, even, even going back to the factory, like that factory sort of a thing, it's starting to just feel so bizarre to me that, that we put so much emphasis on like this outward thing that we present, whether it's a body or whether it's a, a job title, like actions or something. Because it's almost like we're almost embarrassingly human. We're just so 
so much the same at our core. Like if you, you know, if you line up a bunch of men and, you know, or women or whatever, and they're all naked and you line them up and you make them turn around, they all look the same. Like it's, it's just this like, it's so mundane to be human. It's so mundane to have this physical human body. And yet we can't, yet we like, you know, like, oh, it's so, you know, it's so important. And like, I've got to keep it in a certain shape. I've got to make it a certain color. I've got to, you know, I've like tanning or whatever, you know, I don't want to be the color that I am, or I've got to dress a certain way or look a certain way. And it all, like, I have these moments, these glimpses where it all just feels so stupid. Like, can we not just look around and be like, we're just reproducing the same things over and over again. Like, it's so lame that I can't, I can't give birth to something other than another thing that looks like me. I mean, I can't even, I can't convey it, but I I have had that thing of like, you know, we're not, we are not what we think we are. We are not this mind body that we think we are. We're something different. We're not that person. And I can feel that like when I have these glimpses of the stupidity of it all, I just like my mind feels like it's going to explode. I can't even explain it. But then other times I think the trickier part for me right now is that being a person, right? Being in this mind body, this like vessel that we have is how we experience the world, how we experience each other. And I don't think I have to reconcile that. I don't know that you ever can, but that I feel like is the is the question that I'm at right now. Like, okay, so I can have this understanding that I'm not a person, that I'm not this mind body that you know I see in the mirror. But at the same time, that's how everybody else sees me. That's how everybody else knows me. And that is what enables me to know and love everybody else. So how do I stay anchored in that recognition while also fully engaging from the mind body. Yeah, I mean I think that's that's the ultimate challenge. And and maybe to go back to the the prism example, you know, we so the the person is the little refractions of light on the other end of the prism. Yeah. And it is it is the source, God, whatever you want to call it, that is is coming into being. Spirit maybe is an even better term. It's more all-inclusive. And this, what we're talking about to for the person to choose to let go of their personhood is to return, right? And then the question becomes, now what? Right, I, I think that that is, and it's what Spyro would talk about as so the the spiritual path or non-path right is 12 chapters and the first chapter is that realization mm-hmm. and returning to the source realizing that that is your true nature and then there are these other chapters of figuring out okay now what mm-hmm. and i think that that's that is the ultimate challenge that we face but i think it's so important that we we pause there because it's so easy to get bought back into this, the illusion that what we are is 
a separate self is the is the right. little refraction of light mm -hmm. so it's almost like maybe life is a continual oscillation between the two mm -hmm. Because you're always the same. You are, you are always the same thing. Even if you yes. are appearing to be this refracted light, you are still the same light that is coming, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe that's why the word realization is so good because it's just realizing who you are. So there isn't necessarily a movement, mm -hmm. right? There's not. You don't necessarily have to return to the source mm -hmm. because you can just, even in your real, little refraction of light that is appearing to others as this individual person as this parent as this worker whatever it is mind body but that continual realization that that is not who you are it's just how you're appearing to be mm -hmm. so i like that because it makes me think enlightenment i wonder if if i could think of enlightenment as being the you know those other the rest of the chapters right where you're beginning to look and act more from the source mm -hmm. space right than the self than the individual space and that's kind of like uh, that shifting of control right that locus of control that you were saying too is like enlightenment is trying to shift more and more towards the source even though I think in this lifetime, you're going to constantly, you know, it's going to be one step forward, two steps back, kind of a, kind of a thing, just because it's so against our nature to like, you know, we want to be part of the dream. We want to be in the drama. We want to, you know, be collecting accolades for ourselves because it feels so real, but the, the deeper calling or thing or whatever is shifting more and more towards the source place mm -hmm. yeah and here's something though we one of the things we were talking about before we uh started the, the actual podcast was you know the motivations in this stuff right and is there anything we actually need to do right i mean that's the that i think is a hallmark almost of this space of enlightened way of being or or awakened or whatever because if you really steep yourself steep your awareness your consciousness in that philosophy and that that theory and you you buy into it so to speak then really it's all the same thing you know there is just this light that is manifesting however it chooses to manifest and there's nothing to do there isn't right. a, yes. there is no return to source because you are the light. Yes, you are. Right. And, and that, and that is, that is freedom mm -hmm. because that helps us to realize that all this striving that we do in life, all this like wanting to get somewhere or having this, this objective, this thing we need to do, it doesn't really matter. Not that it, not that we shouldn't do things. I mean, some people decide on that from this state of mind, but that it's, it's nowhere near as important to do because whatever we do, it doesn't change what is actually the source of what is unfolding. Mm -hmm. All it just changes how it appears, but it doesn't change the, the essence of what is unfolding. Mm -hmm. It makes it really hard to talk about 
some of this stuff because, you know, you have, and I, and I understand more now why Jesus always used parables. Yeah. Because right. it's, it's really hard to find words to explain it. Cause you're right. I mean, we, you know, we talk about it as like, Oh, the source and this and, but you're right that it is like the sugar cookie, you know, like a star, a sugar cookie star praying, please, I just want to be something that is beautiful and moldable. And it's like, well, you are like your dough, like the very thing that you're seeking is the thing that you actually are. And that that is, you know, kind of what the awakening, right? The awakening part is, is realizing that you are that, that you are, you are the thing that you have been seeking. And yeah, you know, I mean, there's people out there that don't want to say I am God or, you know, I am the source, but in a way it's, it's true. I mean, we put, you know, we say God and we mean omnipotent and omniscient. It's like, well, no, I'm not a genie. Like I I'm, I'm can't wave my magic wand and cure diseases, but that we have, which I guess now we would say consciousness, right? Is like, like what is present in us is the same thing that is present in everybody. And that in that sense, we're all the source individually and collectively. Right. Yeah. I mean, to, to tie the, the dough analogy, the dough in the case of the teaching would be awareness. Yes. Right. That awareness is what we all share that nothing, everything that is happening in this very moment, our conversation is happening in awareness. Yes. Without awareness, this wouldn't be happening. Yes. So that's you trace it down to the ultimate source of, of being. It is awareness. And that is the dough. Mm-hmm. And something that uh, as you're talking about the dough and this idea or the cookie, and, I, and now I'm, I'm changing it to, <laughs> by the way, I'm changing it to be a little gingerbread man. So I okay. hope you don't mind. I'm, I'm changing the analogy because I like to picture it as the gingerbread man. <laughs> And you know how the gingerbread man wants to come to life or whatever. Oh yeah. Um, oh my god. Anyway, deep meaning and a simple. Yeah, <laughs> right. But but think about it. So the gingerbread man, the cookie wants to become something else. Wants yeah. to have a new hat or new stars or new buttons to put on or whatever. Or it wants to have other gingerbread cookies around it. Like, And I think that is very tied into how our mode of being in this world. Mm-hmm. How often do we find ourselves like, I want this, I want this, I want this. And if, if we go back to the, the cookie analogy, all that that's doing is it's cementing us into this idea oh, that we are a cookie. And right. it's causing us to forget or not forget. It's neglect. It's causing mm-hmm. us to neglect the actual search of what we really are. So yeah. the more that we pursue externally to put onto ourselves, the or, or the more that we want to fulfill this human life, the less like we are, less likely we are to trace back to find out that we are dough. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, why the breaking can be so useful speaking from my own experience like we break we we reach rock bottoms things like that it forces us to go down and back to the source of what we really are because anything else that we apply to ourselves isn't working 
So mm-hmm. we have to let it all go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a, a friend, she was uh, listening to our podcast last night and she texted me and she, I think she was listening to episode two, maybe, but she asked me if, what did she say? She said, can you be, I'm going to look up her question because it was a good question. Um, she's, she's in a place where she's really, she's really feeling passionate about wanting to make a difference for some people in her career. And, um, she said, she asked me, so can we be the experience and world changers? She was like, can we, you know, can we, can we be in that anchored place, right? Of awareness and also go out and change the world. And, you know, my, my initial response was like, well, yes and no. I mean, it, you know, because, and, and I think that that is, you know, that's kind of what you're getting to is that the more that we, the more that we believe there's things to be fixed and there's things to change and that we have to do this and that and become this or that, then paradoxically, the farther we get away from the source. But then once you know what you are, then you can, in theory, right? Like, I feel like this is the place where you and I both kind of like waiting to see what's going to happen. You know, you can Mm -hmm. still go out into the world and do, and do great things, but it just is coming from a different place. It's no longer, it's no longer coming to fix the world because, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's more like, I love, I love people so much. Like I want to make this dream more beautiful for people. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and I would, yeah, I would encourage your friend. I don't know if you would have mentioned this, but look into that, the notion of bodhisattvas. I I think we touched on that last week and we maybe have touched on it a few episodes. Like that's really it is, Mm -hmm. it is exactly what she's asking about because, you know, it's funny. My first answer when you, when you pose the question, I think your answer is better maybe not that <laughs> not that it really matters but but um I was, my first reaction is like of course you can do whatever you want because that's the truth right, right I mean right. I think I think where your your answer is more helpful <laughs> my answer they're both they're both true yours is more helpful because <laughs> right. the truth is you can do whatever you want because again we are all it yeah we are all the light that is manifesting so whatever we do doesn't really matter but it's almost like you're going to be more effective at the doings, so to speak, if you're coming from a place of awareness of more of an enlightened state of mind. And, and that I think, yeah. And that is yeah. where your yes and no is, is more helpful because you do have to reach. Well, I don't want to say you have to, because right. I don't really know. Yeah. I, I, I'm always reluctant to, to speak so dogmatically about anything now. But I think you you have to reach a point, like you said, that you don't see problems. Because mm-hmm. Eckhart Tolle says that really well. Problems are makings of ego. Yes. It's the ego that is yes. so good at finding problems. And so re- go, coming from a place where you realize there is no problem and yet, as you said, still want to create a certain experience in the world, mm-hmm. that is it. So... Yeah, that's that's good. I love the question. Right. And and that was kind of my thinking is that definitely along the lines of what of what you were saying, hundred percent. And also that 
if you are trying to change things without potentially going through some of this stuff and you're coming entirely from an ego-based thing, there's going to be a lot more emotional suffering, right? Because things aren't going to go your way. There's going to be trials. It's going to be hard. And if you're really attached to your identity as a world changer or really attached to your desire for a certain outcome, then anytime that there's resistance there, there's an obstacle, there's going to be a lot of emotional suffering. Whereas if, you know, if you can come to it from a place of that loving detachment of, you know, hey, this is an experience that is in front of me. There's an opportunity here to serve. And, you know, and I want to participate in that. Then one, you don't become so attached to the outcome. You don't see it as your identity. Like if something goes wrong and you're like, oh, well, that opportunity is no longer in front of me. I have to, that opportunity is lost. Your identity doesn't change. You just don't have to suffer, I think, as much if you are able to be more detached from the supposed need or do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm saying? That was my, that was my other thought is that, Mm -hmm. you know, from an ego-based place, you're attached to the outcome, you're attached to a particular process and you can become attached to the identity that is built around that desire. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hopefully if Mm -hmm. you've done some of this work, then you won't encounter the emotional suffering that comes from those things. Yeah. And I think a practical sort of example is coming to mind. I think one of the biggest, well, I don't even want to say it's one of the biggest because I don't really know. There's there's plenty of what ego would identify as problems in the world and that I think is valid to speak about as problems while at the same time coming from a perspective that, you know, I guess the reason these aren't problems is important to to talk about. And the reason that these aren't problems is because we're all just dough. Right. <laughs> choosing to appear. And that doesn't mean that there isn't pain and suffering, but to remember that we are all just dough forming in various patterns is why it's not actually a problem. Right. So from the frame of reference of the dough of awareness, yeah. there is never a problem. Or yeah, and so like if a dream, right? If it like that, it mm-hmm. then it's all essentially yeah. a dream, and just like right. in a dream, you don't you don't carry over you know awful things that happen in your dream. It's the same kind of thing. Like yeah. they appear real to us right now right. as problems, but ultimately, yeah, it's just ultimate, dream. yeah, ultimate reality kind of thing. Yeah. So thinking of uh, let's say sex trafficking, right? Mm-hmm. That's what comes to mind for me as like it's a a pretty atrocious thing that happens in our world Mm -hmm. and coming at it from a frame of reference where everything is actually okay. It's very difficult, right? It's (laughs) extremely, I I mean, and I'm speaking of this to be clear. I I don't, I'm not involved with those things. I understand them. I, I hear about things. I there's it's in movies all the time. So we see it in that respect. We see it depicted, but the challenge would be, yeah, to approach it from this place of, okay, everything in everything in the world is okay. There is not a problem, but I want to do something to improve this experience that is unfolding. And I think where that could be helpful is 
again, like you said, the detachment, because if you're not detached, the atrocities that you are exposing yourself to might be enough to induce a meltdown that causes you to, to detach, right? Maybe in an unhealthy way. So that's where it, it can be actually beneficial to go about these and not be so attached to the suffering just to see it as something that is, it's not good or bad. It just is, but that you want to do something about it. Mm-hmm. That is, yeah, it's, we're, I'm, we're, we're out of our depths here. I'll say for myself, but I, that's the theory of, of what kind of a bodhisattva would do. Right. Right. And there was kind of a, an interesting idea I came across and I forget I forget where where it was, but it was this idea, and I think you even mentioned it in the beginning, that, or a conversation that you know we can do all sorts of tangible, practical good in the world, but if we are still, you know, suffering and being like blown about by our thoughts and our emotions and everything, then then like how much good have we really done? And you know, I think you gave a quote that um, like self-realization is the greatest gift that you can offer the world. And it makes me think of- um, Yeah, it was Ramana Maharshi. Yeah. Uh, Something else that I was thinking that I had heard before that, you know, the world doesn't need one more miserable person. And, And kind of this idea of like, how can you tip the scale, right? Like how can you tip the balance and in the favor Hmm. of- of more good, more happiness, more peace. And that's why, that's another reason why I think that this kind of stuff is important because I mean, you don't want any, you don't want anybody to suffer. You, if someone is in front of you and you can alleviate their suffering, I mean, that's, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful thing, right? But at the same time, if you're engaged in, uh, it's not even has to be circumstantial, but like if you're coming from a place where you are, genuinely unhappy in your own life have you really tipped the scales for the good or is it just like a superficial contribution you know and I, and I don't know like there's there's no judgment there I think it's an interesting question and it has helped me in guiding some of my choices like I think oh you know if I like oh I should do this but it's it's gonna make me really miss like it's gonna make me unhappy I know from my past experience that like, this is not what I want to do, but I feel like it's what I should do. And then I think, but the world doesn't need another miserable person. You know, I can do something different and tip the scales, the other, the other direction in a way that's away from depression, away from anxiety, away from being miserable. And so I think that's the other thing too, you know, if you're like, you're saying, if you're, if you can't be detached, then you could put yourself in a situation where the circumstances and the outcomes are so depressing and awful that you end up becoming depressed and miserable yourself. And then, I don't know, is that, is that, in, is that in the world's best interest? I guess there's a couple answers to that. Because in one answer, it's like, sure, it doesn't really matter. Right, right? it doesn't I really mean, matter. I think we're, <laughs> where we're coming, it's, that's, that's where this yeah. stuff is really tricky because really – from from this from the most fundamental element of all this stuff like 
it none of it really matters. Yeah, from the personal um, part of it, all the person stuff yeah, doesn't matter. Right. It, it's like if we, one of the things we were talking about the mainstream spiritual and religious teachers and whether it's religious like christian teachers or whether it's new age whether it's eastern whether it's mysticism whatever it is they're never going to say none of this matters right Right, because that that is not what sells books that is not what draws viewers people want there to be um, their meaning they're there to people want there to be individuated meaning Mm -hmm. in this experience but the reality is if you take this teaching at face value, this theory that we are all the light that is manifesting, none of it really matters, right? We're right. just a, we're just light having an experience. Yep. And and that's again, I I, I don't want to say like nihilistically, because it it's it's hard, right? It's it's easy to to come across and sound nihilistic. But if it is what it is, then it just is what it is, you know, mm. and, and then you can, there's a peace in that. I think that, you know, the, the, the fruit that I sense and experience the most from steeping in these perspectives is peace. That's mm. just like, well, if it is what it is and everything is just fine the way that it is, that's peaceful, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, and it, there's like a neutrality behind it. It's not nihilistic, but it's mm. neutral. Mm-hmm. Maybe the, maybe the way that I think about it. One of the things that I've noticed, I mean, I've, I've heard and read some negative things about some of the teachers, you know, that we, that we follow like Spira and Rupert or Spira and Toll and Muji and Ramana Maharshi and all these, I've heard, I've, I've read some negative things about them. And it's funny though, because one of the things that I kind of admire in a weird way is that the criticisms that are lobbied against them are almost like evidence that they're taking their teaching seriously. Like there's no hypocrisy there. Like they, people will talk about, you know, one of the teachers um, saying something mean or hurting somebody's feelings or, you know, something like that. And it's like, well, if they believe that you are not your thoughts and you are not your emotions, then yeah, they might behave that way. Like, you know, if you're coming from this place of like, you are all like, we're all the same thing. You know, if you like my, my sugar cookie analogy, you know, if I say you're not a star and you're like, but I am, but I am, but I am. It's like, no, you're just dough. But you get so offended by the fact that I called you a star. It's like, that's not me being mean. That's me being aligned with what my teachings and my beliefs are. You know what I'm saying? So in, on one hand, it's, I think I find it interesting. I mean, these, these non-dual teachings are not socially acceptable. And, you know, even now, like I, um, I had this conversation with someone the other day and in, we were in a public place and some of the things that were being said we're not politically correct. We're not very PC. This person was being very open and just saying what they thought. And I had a moment when I was a little bit nervous and kind of like tuned into who was in the public area near us because I thought, oh my gosh, if someone 
sees me engaging in this conversation and not like calling the person out, then they're going to be like, wow, you're aligning yourself with someone who is racist. And, you know, the fact that you didn't stand up and say something means that you're just as racist as they are kind of a kind of an environment. And I felt really torn because on one hand, I, you know, I do think that it's important to meet people where they are and to, you know, to recognize that they're, whether this experience is a dream or not, it could certainly be a better dream. You know, it's definitely a lot of room for improvement for people's experiences. And, you know, I mean, I would, this person would want to be part of that. But then on the other hand, I'm just like, God, like, we're all just dough. Can we just get over ourselves? And like, we're all just dough. Um, But it, you know, you pointed out even the Jesus thing of how, um, you know, he sat with sinners and, and what that would have meant for him. Long-winded story to say back to, you know, these, these teachings are, are really hard to live out in society. And I think you do have people who's like, even though they want to live out these teachings, there is that element of ego of like, well, I need to survive. I need to make money. And so I'm not going to tell people that it doesn't matter, even though I'll, or maybe I'll write a book and tell them that it doesn't matter and hope that everybody buys my book <laughs> um, because you have to find a way to make money. But these these non-dual teachings, if you take them at face value, are really, really hard and are not going to be the thing that makes you popular. They're not going to be the thing that makes you money. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, I'm reminded of the the whole free will thing to potentially tell bunch of people that you don't have free will and, and you have no control over your life is mm-hmm. not going to be a popular teaching either. But it's sort of like, depending on the vantage point that you're taking in these teachings does kind of apply, right? Mm-hmm. It's not as black and white as maybe we think it is, but it's it can be dicey. Yeah. Something that's been coming to mind as we're talking about this stuff is, you know, how do we do it, right? I mean, how do we actually reach these states of mind or no mind, you know? So so what are quick high level, and I know we talk about it in other podcasts, but I think it's always good to, to refresh. It's like, as we talk about this real grandiose philosophical implications, what are the ways in which we can actually reach these, ways of being do you have anything that comes to mind as like a go-to ways of kind of i guess steep that what i'm what i envision is like steeping yourself in this mindset like what are ways to steep ourselves in it i mean silence is the biggest is the biggest thing right just feeling that sense of of either oneness with everything or just a sense of nothingness Mm -hmm. because it's, it's one in the same (laughs) in, in a weird way, you know, just like allowing yourself to, to be nothing. And I think too, I mean, the, along the, that line, it's like now I find comfort in being nothing. I like the feeling of sort of like allowing my sense of space or whatever to dissolve but there is definitely a, there was a lot of grieving 
that happened as I realized what it would take to come to this place that I felt like I was being drawn into. And I didn't exactly, I mean, I kind of came kicking and screaming. <laughs> so I didn't exactly come, but I kind of did. Um, and there was a lot of tears and a lot of like, I don't want to become nothing. I want, I want to be special. I want there to be a sense of magic to my life. I, I want to be free from these difficult circumstances. You know, I want life to go a certain way. I want to be known for, you know, like leaving a mark in the world. I, you know, all of these, these things. And I just felt called to like internally, like an internal drawing to let it go. And I cried. I sought help from a spiritual director. I, you know, reached out to people online. I read books. I sat just like staring at nothing. I cried. I grieved. I was angry. Like I went through the whole bucket of emotions. And sometimes I think that is, sometimes I think that's necessary too. That's that ego death that we are talking about. And, you know, there can be a shame or a reluctance to enter into those, those emotions, but it's, I think it's just all part of the process. And so I guess like on one hand, you know, sit in silence and feel like you're nothing. And then on the other hand, if feeling like nothing you know, feels like death, well then go there. What about you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny. The silence is the first one that came to mind and it is, I mean, silence is good because it's a, it's the ultimate practice to let go, right. To, to be fully silent is to let go of the thoughts, you know, be still and silent. So, so Mm -hmm. let your body just do what it's going to do. You don't have to do anything with it. It's literally just sitting and being yeah. still and silent and just basking in pure awareness. I mean, that that is mm-hmm. probably the ultimate practice. But in terms of mental practices, I do think mental practices, I know mental practices help. And what, another thing I was coming to mind, and you actually hit on it quite a bit there, is this idea of allowing. Yes. So important because resistance, it's the opposite of resistance, right? right? Resistance is what so often keeps us rooted in in a kind of negative space yeah and if we just allow whatever is happening in each moment if we just allow it to be that i find to be so helpful and then the last word and again it's kind of a mental exercise and i love that we talk about this because i've never even thought about this for myself to describe it this way but it's something i practice from time to time and i call it isness as I, as I was mm. reflecting, isness just, it's kind of like allowing, but it is just basking in the isness of now yes. in whatever moment it is, right? It's just, this is, this is. And, and so it's allowance, it's allowing whatever to be is without needing to change anything, but it's just, yes, this is because that is it. I mean, we are, we can't deny what, what we're experiencing. We can't fabricate it. it. It is what we're experiencing. And I think just fully allowing it and fully embracing the isness of it can be really, really helpful in, in this in this journey. Because and the reason that I think it's important to touch on these things is because there's two ways to deepen our realizations, right? It's it's this, it's practices, or it's pain and suffering. That's it. 
right? <laughs> so helping people yeah. avoid the potential pain and suffering route uh, is ideal. But, yeah. you know, maybe that's maybe that's what's going to happen anyways. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen, though. <laughs> mm, yes. Well, that feels like a pretty good place to wrap up. And yeah. as usual, uh, if anybody listening has additional questions or thoughts on this or I don't know, is there's any way that we could help you or support you on your journey, reach out to us at from believing to being at gmail.com. And we look forward to, yeah, seeing you guys on a future episode. Take care. <laughs>